This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday show. We are live yesterday, of course, because of the holiday. We had a pre-recorded broadcast. I'm happy to be with you live. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, pretty much anything that's on your heart. We'll do the best that we can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car and it just started raining where we're producing this program, so be careful, but the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Hope you had a great weekend in church. I hope you had a fun holiday yesterday. And now it's time to get back to work. While I wait for phone calls, let me take a question that came in from Kaylee. Um, Kaylee is a young girl who doesn't live in this area anymore, but she grew up in our church. And Kaylee, we love you and miss you. Uh, Here is your question. Uh, She says, howdy. I'm reading through Joshua this week and just started today. Now, let me just take a break here. You know, we've had questions last week, several questions about the best way to teach kids in Sunday school or children's church. And I said last week, two separate questions. We just teach in the Bible, verse by verse. Now, Kaylee's not a little kid anymore. And yet here she starts her, her question by saying, I'm reading through Joshua this week. God bless you, Kaylee. Read your Bible. Turn the pages. In fact, get off your pads and your phones. Turn pages. It makes a difference. Well, here's her question. As I read chapter 1, I noticed that the author said, Be strong and courageous multiple times and was curious if it was just to get his point across or if it was used in a different way. For example, in first in John twenty one, Peter tells or Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep three times, and in the original language it means in three different ways. One of my friends on Facebook, he's a pastor, said that the phrase is used a couple of times in Deuteronomy one and two uh, and first, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 1, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and Joshua, and they're all the same Hebrew word. He said that the phrase always carries the idea of trusting and obeying God's direction in spite of opposing cultural or circumstantial pressure not to. Basically, that it means to fear God and not men each time. I agree with him, but was curious about your thoughts on this. Kaylee, thank you very, very much. A couple of things. The, the, the author wasn't saying be strong and courageous. Joshua was being told to be strong and courageous over and over and over by the Lord. And God said to him, and the Lord said to him, and the Lord said to him, be strong and courageous. Now, Kaylee, the reason that God would have to say that to him is because he was afraid. And Joshua had a lot to be afraid of. Imagine for a moment what it's like to follow Moses. 
I love Joshua's book. It starts off with Moses, my servant is dead. God is simply saying, get over it. You know, everybody was warning Moses. Joshua was a humble guy. He didn't necessarily want to take over, but called by God. And and I always imagine Joshua thinking, oh, I'm going to ruin this. You know, they always went to Moses. They always looked to Moses for leadership. Moses was the man. And Joshua would be thinking, how can I ever replace him? And that's why the Lord told him, be strong and courageous. And he would say that the source of your strength and courage, and that's all it means. This isn't about fearing God in spite of circumstances or anything else. This is, don't be afraid, be strong and be courageous. And again, because Joshua was afraid, God repeated himself over and over. Moses, my servant, is dead, he was told. Get over it, move on, there's work to do. And the work of God always moves on. God lose one ser- loses one servant, and he raises up another one. So, Kaylee, the reason, the only reason that he was told to be strong and courageous was because he was having a, a crisis of fear. And, and again, who can blame him to follow Moses would be one of the most daunting tasks in history. Uh, Jews revered Moses as no other. So uh, he was afraid. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about here. Joshua, how did he get prepared to take over for Moses? What was it about Joshua that God chose him to take over? Well, the answer is Joshua was a servant. He was the faithful servant of Moses. Joshua was a man of faith. He and Caleb alone had the faith for 40 years to go through the wilderness awaiting the promises of God. Joshua, you'll remember when Moses would go to the tabernacle. Joshua would sit just outside. He couldn't go in because of the glory of God. But Joshua always wanted to be where God was and where Moses was. So he was uniquely prepared. He wasn't qualified, yet God qualified him. And in spite of his being afraid, God chose him. So I hope that answers your question, Kaylee. This isn't one of those things where you've got to go to the the Greek language, just look at the context, and remember that it was God who was telling Joshua not to be afraid, be strong, be courageous, for here's the, the reason, for I am with you. As I was with my servant Moses, so will I be with you. Great question, Kaylee. Let's go to the phones. We've got Ruben calling from Seguin on line one. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, Ruben. Thank you. Thank God. Thank God. Um, uh, I have a question for you. Psalms 13. Um, uh, uh, would it be okay if I just read a few of the, of the, thing, uh, the scriptures that I want to ask you a question about? Sure. Okay, uh, of course, it starts off with, "How long, Lord, will you forget me? For will you? For, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and day after day have sorrow in my heart?" And then it's come a skip one. Look, look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and I, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Okay, my question is this: Am I understanding the context without, just like you told Kaylee right now, without going into the Greek and you know going deep into what this was and what that was? Um, but from what I'm reading. Um, as you know, everything that I'm going through and and the things that, that the enemy, that I have allowed the enemy to put into my mind, you know, that, that, that God is punishing me and that, that, that you know, uh, even what that lady said the other day, you have no idea how I just kept hearing that, what she said, that it was my fault that I'm going through what I'm going through. And I was like, oh, my God, really? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, okay, so anyways, my question is, is David is... is this, he he was in sin at this time, and uh, he was lamenting what he was doing. But he was in the act of sin, and the way that I, the way that I'm taking it is that he was lamenting it, and because he says, "How long, Lord, will you forget me forever?" You know, and then he says, "How long must I wrestle with my thoughts?" 
you know, and he, because that's how I feel like, you know, how must I wrestle with these thoughts that go into my mind and all this? And then he said, look at me and answer, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes. Now give light to my eyes. It, to me, when I read that, it's like God, he's saying, God, God, let me see. Let me see the truth that is out there. Now, am I correct? Ruben, yeah, let me stop you because you're, you're, you're misinterpreting the psalm. Uh, this is a, this yeah. Th- this was a psalm that David was writing not when he was in sin. This was a a psalm written during a, a time of severe testing, when it seemed like every day death was near and and perhaps even certain. Uh, probably written during the ten years or so that David was running from Saul, hiding out in caves. Remember, David had been called by God to be the king, and yet Saul was chasing him, trying to kill him. And it's not something that that David would have believed would be the case. You know, if God called me, he's going to protect me. And yet this is the time in those caves. Psalm 84 was written here. It's in this time when, when David grew a deeper appreciation for the presence of God, being in the house of God. And, and God, we know, did have David covered. He was safe during this time, but David never felt safe. So he wasn't sinning at all. And, and Reuben, the reason this is such a good psalm for you is because your condition isn't a result of sin. Your, your doubts, just like David's doubts, it's not sin to have doubt. Um, your doubts are a, a, a response to looking at the circumstances around you and saying, well, God, I never believed that things were going to be this way. And how long is this going to last? So there's nothing sinful at all about this. Um, it seems though the trials will never end. They always do. Now, the most important lesson David learned, and I think the most important lesson you can learn, is that God never forgets you. God's never hiding. It may seem that way, but God's never hiding. We can't understand the reasons God does the things he does, nor should we even strive to understand. What we should strive to do is learn what God wants from you in the middle of the trial that you're in. And these are the times that we need to know for sure that he will never leave us or forsake us. So there's no sin here at all, Reuben, nor is there sin in your life because you're afraid. This is just David saying, God, this isn't the way I thought it would turn out. And, and he, like you, like me, he wants the trial to end. And we know for David, it lasts for 10 years before uh, Saul is gone. He's going to be the king. And then now it makes sense. Yep. Thank you so much, Pastor. My pleasure, Ruben. God bless you. We're praying for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Uh-huh. God bless. Let's go to line two. We've got John calling from Cibolo. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my pleasure. I have, a couple, I have a couple questions regarding a uh, book of... Or to, in Numbers around chapter 31, it talks about the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh staying on the east side of the Jordan. And my question is, were they kind of out of the will of God for not wanting to cross the River Jordan? Or was this, was this already originally a part of the land that the tribes were to receive? And then the other question is, why did Manasseh split? They, they weren't that big a tribe, and yet the two tribes seem to get a lot of territory. So those are my questions. Thank you, John. Good, good question, too. Uh, like, the, like the question Reuben just called in, you know, we can learn so much. I call the east side of the Jordan, uh, John, the godless side. Um, this is a, a perfect picture of what so many Christians are guilty of. We, we come to a place where we're comfortable. We come to a place where by our own vision we can see, oh, this is perfect. This is everything that I need. And, and you know, we're, we're herdsmen, so we need this grassland, this grazing land. And instead of asking God where he wanted them to go, they made the request, they want to stay here. Now, the problem, of course, is that God had so much better planned for him in the promised land. And this is, again, a picture of Christians who stop short of God's perfect, pleasing and acceptable will. You know, when we're comfortable in a place, when we think this is everything that we need, instead of going to God and saying, "Okay, Lord, what do you want? Is this the place we should stay or do you have more for us? 
and God will always give us direction. Now remember, John, that that the, the uh, Israelites now finally uh, going into the Promised Land, and and they're willing to settle for less than God's best for them, and that broke God's heart. These tribes, Reuben and Gad, were the the tribes that were 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 uh, attacked first. Um, when the Assyrians came, they would be the first uh, during the judgment of, of the Assyrians to, to be taken into captivity and, and in many cases to, to have their people killed. And all because they stayed in the place they wanted the place to look good to them instead of being in the place where God wanted them to be. You know, when we, the, the promised land, some people often say, well, the promised land is a picture of heaven. It's not. The promised land for Israel is a picture of God's perfect will in our lives. And every time, John, that we settle for less than God's best, we're out of his perfect will, which means we're not in the place that God intended for us to be, and it's always going to cost us something. It leaves us vulnerable to attack from the enemy, and that was the case here. So those two tribes, um, um, two and a half tribes, actually, they stayed on what I, again, call the godless side of the Jordan River, and they're the ones that missed out. There's something else, John, that I want to indicate about this. Remember when Moses heard that they were going to stay on that side, he got angry. He assumed that they didn't want to go in and fight the battles in the Promised Land. And uh, and Moses said, no, you've got to go fight. And they said, oh, no, we'll do it. Now, their heart was in the right place. Yeah, we'll, we'll go fight with you. But when we're done fighting, we want to come back. Now, here's I want you to think about something, John. We know the campaign in Canaan was seven years long. That means for seven years, the men of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, um, for seven years, those men left their families in, on the other side of the Jordan, unprotected. And they had to go into the Promised Land and fight all the battles. They fought in Jericho. They fought in Ai. They fought... Uh, um, uh, the, the battles uh, in the campaign that God had for them, and yet they didn't really, as a result of fighting, uh, obtain God's perfect will at all. And it's all because they stopped short. And it's important, I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm going to say it one more time. When Christians settle for less than God's best, we're the ones getting ripped off, and most of the time we don't even know it. Being in God's perfect will is the place every one of us ought to be. And it is, by the way, the place that God wants us to be. So uh, they were just willing to settle for less than God's best. As a result, uh, those two and a half tribes, uh, they had a really difficult time. And as I said, they were uh, the first to be attacked and and slaughtered by the Assyrians um, hundreds of years later. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from, let me see here, Leslie. Uh, How would I respond to an African-American who says Christianity is a white man's religion because Jesus was white? Well, Leslie, there was nothing white about Jesus. He was not a Caucasian. Uh, Jesus skin would have been darker certainly than my skin um, um, Jesus was a Jew his features would be very Jewish um, and um, um, so this idea just because we got Jesus on pictures uh, in in the West is white if you were to go to Africa you'd see the pictures that people have on their walls of Jesus he's black so I think that's intentional I also think it's a good thing I think Jesus is a reflection of who we are and that's the way we think about him. So the way I would respond to this African-American is I would tell him, he's first, he's wrong, and second, he hasn't really met Jesus. You meet Jesus, and you're going to look into those eyes. Figuratively speaking, you're going to know who he is. You're going to see the perfect heart. And um, I've... I've had this argument before, but but it's simply a lack of understanding, a lack of scholarship, 
And often it's just nothing more than a ploy to to allow us to keep sinning and finding excuses for not following Jesus. Leslie, I don't think I've got anybody holding, do I? Let me, um, uh, let me tell you a very quick story. Uh, we did a Joy Jesus trip to New York on the one-year anniversary of 9-11. And we were in the streets and on the subways and sharing, and people, believe me, people were open, they were ready, and they got saved. Uh, we were on our way to Coney Island, and uh, we stopped at a stop and picked up this black guy um, who was going home. He lived uh, in bedford Stuy, And, um, you know, he was very standoffish, and we were sharing with everybody. And the farther you get to closer to Coney Island, the closer you get, the, the, the fewer people are, because that's the end, of the end of the run, and then they come back. And uh, bedford Stuy was the, the, the one uh, exit just before Coney Island. And so we had, it's a fairly long subway trip, and we were uh, trying to share with him. And finally, this is what he said to one of our, our ladies. She was asking, did he know Jesus? And he said the same thing. He said, Jesus is white man's God. I, I don't want anything to do with the white man's God. And she said, well, what makes you think Jesus is, is white? And he said, because I see him in all the pictures. And she said, Jesus is who you need him to be. Now, this guy was a gangster. I mean, he was a tough guy. And he was making it known, don't come near me. But she wouldn't persist. And so he kept asking her questions. And she kept saying, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And finally he said to her, he said, so you're telling me if I want Jesus to be black, he can be black. And she said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And Leslie, he started crying. And in minutes was giving his life to Jesus, tears flowing. It was just like the floodgates were loosened. And when we stopped to let him off at the the last stop before Coney Island, he stood as the train slowly went away. He stood on the side, waving to us like a five-year-old, tears flowing down his cheeks. But, But see, he got saved that day. Jesus is who we need him to be. It doesn't change who he was. He was a Jew. But it doesn't change who he was. So, no, Christianity is not a white man's religion at all. You tell people like that, that Jesus will meet them where they are, whoever they might be. You remember, uh, Leslie, the movie um, The Shack, the, the, the book first. The book was famous and very controversial, uh, unnecessarily so in my opinion. But uh, um, God was portrayed there as a, a big black woman. And that was one of the geniuses of the story. Uh, the, the, the protagonist, who was really an autobiographical Paul Young story, um, he was a man who had been uh, sexually abused by men in his life and um, had a deep hatred for, for men and, and a fear because of what had been done to him. And um, in his encounter with God, it's no wonder that God appeared to him as a big black woman. And it was a picture of a woman that he knew growing up, a place that he would run to and be comforted. When his father was abusive, he could go next door and there was this woman. She was kind. She would feed him. And so that's the way God approached Paul Young, the author. And obviously Paul got saved and we've got the story. But God will meet you where you need to be met because he loves you. So that's what I would tell everybody. How are we doing on time? I need to know. i got two minutes. Here's a question. Uh, Jill says, Pastor Ron, would you discuss giving? How much and when should we give? Jill, um, I can do this in 30 seconds because that's what my announcer takes every week. We tell uh, the people that uh, we don't want them to give under compulsion. We don't want them to give out of guilt. We want them to give with a cheerful, joyful heart because they're grateful for what God has done and because we love Him. So giving is something that we ought to do. It ought to be done sacrificially. We need to be giving to our church. And when we do that, the Lord is so pleased because we're pleased. And Jill, that means that we owe him everything that we have. 
Now, if you seek the Lord on how much to give, he's going to let you keep most of your the money, but he wants you to realize that it's not your money, it's his money. And that's why this whole concept of tithing is so offensive to me, so misunderstood and poorly taught, by the way. Tithing is not a New Testament concept at all. And uh, when we begin to understand that instead of, well, I have to give 10%, we can say, well, Lord, you gave me, I'm going to just use an easy number, 100 bucks. How much of the 100 do you want me to keep? But it's all yours. And when we begin to understand that, Jill, that's when the Lord begins to really and truly bless us with understanding and peace and joy. So I hope that makes sense, Jill. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. It's the word to stand up for life. I'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Tuesday show, 340-9585. We've got Cindy holding on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You are on the radio. Hey, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. Hi. You know, I was thinking about in Psalms where it says that everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Now, everything on this planet has to have oxygen, so it must be breathing in one form or another. So I'm wondering, there must be a different word that that word breath means. Because if you put a bug in a jar and you close it, eventually it dies, you know, because it doesn't have any oxygen. But, you know, animals breathe like normal, like we breathe. So I'm just kind of curious about that, and I'll listen to you on the radio. Okay, Cindy, thank you. You you come up with some of the most unique and original questions. I appreciate it. You know what? Cindy's really smart. I don't think she knows how smart she is, but, but that's just a curious mind working. Everything that has breath is simply a reference, and you can come to our study um, Wednesday uh, in Genesis, uh, we're we're going to do days two through five, and then a week from Wednesday, day six, when man is made, and every animal, every creature, every living thing that is in that that is in day two through day six is is thereby commanded to praise the Lord. We have our life in Him, our life because of Him, our life is to be lived for Him. So this is just. Uh, the, the the animal kingdom, um, the, the humans, um, everything that has breath, and this is a very specific reference to, not to oxygen, but our ability to breathe as animals. Now people say, well, well, animals, how, how do they praise the Lord? Well, we know they do. We know they do. There was an animal, a donkey, that praised God by being obedient to him in the... the uh, uh, example of the false prophet Balaam. Um, Jesus said rocks could cry out. Now, they're not included in this, but um, believe me, animals, um, they're aware of God. And by the way, they obey him, unlike humans. So, Cindy, that's all the reference is, and it's very, very clear. And so uh, this Wednesday and the following Wednesday, we're going to spend some time. Uh, Psalm 150, verse 6, you can look at that. I don't have it in front of me right now, but that is a, uh, a similar thought. Thank you, Cindy, very, very much. Let's go to Rita from San Antonio on line 2. Rita, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, my... Uh I have a question for you. Uh, do you do uh, individual uh, counseling? Uh, Rita, I do, I do a lot of it. Um, 
unfortunately, I'm, I'm so busy with just the, the people in our church, uh, our pastoral staff, um, that we, I really don't take counseling people from outside, except in very, very rare occasions. And we never charge for counseling or anything like that. But, um, uh, you know, we're not, um, we're, we're here to pastor a church. So um, that's about the limit. But I do do a lot of counseling. Uh, the reason that I'm asking you is because I really like your approach uh, of uh, problems and things like that that I've heard you speak on, mm-hmm. uh, and I would like to uh, if you would to be so kind and take me, uh, I would love to counsel with you uh, okay. if you could do that for me. That that would be very grateful. Okay, Rita, let me give you a phone number that you can call. And I'll ask you to talk to my office manager. Her name is Annette. You can dial 6, it's 210-658-8337. Yes, 8337. Okay, 8337-8337. And leave her her your phone number, and I'll probably... Uh, begin having Paula or somebody else call you, and we'll see if if it's if we think it's like really urgent, and we'll see what the Lord is leading. But but give us a call, and we'll do what we can. Okay. I can. Can you repeat that number again? Six five eight. Yes. Six five eight eight three three seven. Thank you so much. I really My appreciate pleasure, it. God, uh-huh. bless. God God bless you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. You know, a lot of times, and I don't know Rita, so I don't know that that this is her case. And so, Rita, this isn't at all personal, but but this is why you can't have a pastor on the radio. It's why you need to be in a church, part of a local body, where the pastor knows you and you know him, and then uh, you can avail yourself of the the counseling services and the ministries that are available at that church. It's just impossible to pastor people uh, that you don't get to hug and see and get to know. Read another thing I would suggest, uh, I trust you're still listening, is uh, come and visit us. Come and put your face in my mug and I'll be able to put a face and a name together. Uh, and uh, you'd be amazed at how much counseling is done simply through the teaching of the word. So that's my plug for everybody to be in church. You need to be in church, and your church needs you. Here is a question from Tracy. I don't know if this is a male or a female, Tracy. He or she says, I can't get over the fact of slavery in the Bible. If God loved us, why would he have slavery? Uh, Tracy, uh, two, two things. One, you need to divorce the idea of slavery from what we immediately think about uh, in the United States as it relates to um, our country and in our sordid past. Slavery was not a black and white issue in the Bible times. Slavery was a fact of life. Um, um, In the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered free men four to one. Uh, People were born into slavery. Some sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Um, Others, uh, uh, having sold themselves into slavery, decided they wanted to remain a slave. Their their owner was um, kind and and caring. But the truth is that, that slavery was a fact of life. So when we read about slavery in the New Testament, and slavery's always been a part of this world, when we read about the New Testament, Paul or, or Peter, the others, are simply saying, uh, if you're a slave, be a slave for Jesus. If you're a slave, work as unto the Lord. So he, he doesn't tell them to run away. That would have cost them their lives. He's dealing with it as a reality. There is no endorsement of slavery in the Bible. In Paul's letters to Timothy, he condemns uh, men stealers, the King James uses, um, uh, to, to a life uh, in eternity in hell. So there's no endorsement of slavery. It's simply acknowledged in the Bible as a fact of life. Now imagine for a moment that you were a slave and you gave your life to Jesus. You heard about this freedom in Christ and you thought, well, I want to be free, 
But, but the truth is, even after you received Christ, you had to go back as a slave. That was just the way of the world. You could be killed, would be killed most likely, for trying to run away. Uh, and, and our Bible deals with slavery as a reality that people need to learn to deal with. And Paul and Peter would just tell them this is how to deal with it. So it's it shouldn't be a stumbling block for anybody. Um, remember, don't blame slavery on God. It's humans, fallen humans, who enslave other people. We are going through now a time where um, both young men and young women are being taken into sex, the sex trade and literally are slaves at a, at a, at a rate that I'm 69, 68 years old and I've never seen anything like this. It is a problem in every major city in this country. Right here in San Antonio, we have women who are in bondage to slave, slave traders. Uh, it looks different. It's all about sex now, but it's very profitable. God doesn't stop it. He's not yet going to stop all sin, but he certainly doesn't condone it. And he didn't there either. So, Tracy, I hope that helps you, and it shouldn't be something that you have any difficulty with at all. Uh, let's go to Harold calling on line three. Harold, good to hear from you. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. The weather's a little bit rough, and uh, my I think I have a little static on the phone. But uh, other than that, everything's fine. I was going to ask you, you know, the topic of slavery, I had an understanding that in the, I guess, the Old Testament, the, there are some folk, uh, the Jewish people didn't have slaves, they had servants. And it wasn't considered the same the same as a slave. And they were considered a, a servant, especially back in maybe Moses' time. And the other thing, there's, uh, I, I was curious, there's supposed to be a movie in town tonight, speaking of Moses, about crossing the Red Sea. It's more of a documentary. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if you heard about it or if you were going to go to it or anything. And Theater. Yeah. yeah, Harold, I'm not going to it. I did hear an ad for it on uh, KSLR, um, but oh. but no, I'm not going to go to it. Um, I've um, yeah. I'm completely convinced already of the miracle of the Red Sea. Let me deal with well, your question. Why I am. That's that's yeah. why I am. But I'll listen to the yeah. slavery thing if you don't mind on the radio. I'll do it. Thank thank you, Harold. All right. Um, um, slave, slavery, as, as I said, has always been a fact of life. Now, you remember some of God's strongest condemnations against Jews were that they were enslaving their own people. Slavery has always been an economic issue. Long before it was the black and white issue, it's always been an economic issue. And those Jews who had more money and bailed Jews who had no money out, enslaved them. Now, you can call them a servant, but but the truth is they were slaves. One other thing I want to point out here, Harold, is every time you see the word servant uh, used in the context of, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ or a servant of, of, uh, a servant of sin, every single time that you do that is, every time you do that, it's one of those things where you've got uh, the, the word translated wrong. It's the word doulos. And every single time, it's a slave. And because the word is so offensive, we try to whitewash the word, and we shouldn't. When, when the Bible says you're either slave to sin or slave to righteousness, that means a slave, a slave master, a cruel slave master, if we're slaves to sin. But if we're slaves to righteousness then we're bond servants, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. So, again, slavery has always been a fact of life. And not only did Jews have slaves, but often they enslaved themselves. Nehemiah, most pointedly, was beside himself when he would uh, find that, that Jews had enslaved their own people or were lending money with usury to others. So it's really important um, that, that we understand this whole thing about slavery. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Elmer. He says, your th- can I have your thoughts on self-defense 
or should we just have faith in God to protect you? And then he said just two words with a question mark, carrying weapons. Um, Elmer, we are not only entitled to defend ourselves, but I think there's an implied commandment to do so. And defending oneself or defending one's family is nothing to do with the failure of your faith. Now, I'm not a gun guy, but I know some of the best Christians in the world, people in our church here, who are concealed carry guys. And there's nothing wrong with their faith. It's just a different perspective. So, um, yes, self-defense is not only okay, it's, it's as I said, a, a presumed commandment. Uh, we need to care for our families. We need to take care of our families. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to go to the other extreme and say, well, you should just have trust in God to protect you. Well, the people who say that lock their doors at their homes or lock their cars. Shouldn't they just have faith to protect God? So, no, there's there's nothing at all wrong with defending oneself. Um, we, we all hope and pray that we never get to that situation. However, if we do, then we have to protect ourselves and protect our families especially. Regarding carrying weapons, again, as long as we comply with the laws and we need to comply with the laws, there is nothing ungodly about carrying a weapon. Uh, I, for one, as I said, I'm not a gun guy. But I'm grateful to know that should anything ever happen here at Calvary Chapel, the kind of tragedies that we see in churches these days, uh, we got a whole bunch of concealed carry people in our church um, who who would would be in a position of being able to defend uh, the rest of us. So I don't see any problem at all with carrying weapons. Uh, we have a a man in our church who has taught. Um, shooting and, and concealed carry classes uh, to a lot of people in our church. He 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 runs a, a, a gun range. Um, uh, was in the military and is an expert. So um, I would just say, if you're going to carry, then be trained, be prepared, uh, and and uh, I don't see anything wrong with that at all. Hope that helps. Here is a question from Muriel. She says, Is my husband guilty of adultery if he lusts after women, such as looking at naked pictures of women? Muriel? Um, He's guilty of lust. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said... Uh, You have heard that it was said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you look at a woman with lust, you're guilty of adultery. We have to remember what Jesus was doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He was elevating the standard. What he was saying is, You Jews, you've got the law. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, he was going not just to the letter of the law, but beyond the letter of the law to the spirit behind the law. And, and obviously that is an impossible standard. And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to let people know that apart from believing in Jesus Christ, apart from his righteousness being given to us, uh, there's no way that we can keep the law. We're all going to spend eternity in hell. So when you give your husband a standard of, well, he's guilty of adultery, this is not grounds for divorce, What your husband needs to do, Muriel, is deal with the fact that he's breaking your heart. He needs to deal with the fact that he is not pleasing to God if he's looking at naked pictures of women. And if he's lusting after women, then he, uh, women who are not his wife, there's nothing wrong with a man lusting after his wife. I call it holy lust. Um, But the truth of the matter is that he is separated from God in fellowship, not indicating he's not saved. But when he's doing those things, his heart, his mind, and his eyes are not on Jesus any longer, and his fellowship has been broken by sin, and he needs to repent. Let me give you some counsel that almost nobody ever takes. You need to go to your husband and say, we're going to go to the pastor, and we're going to go to counseling for this. You are breaking my heart. You're making me feel unloved uh, when you're looking at naked pictures of other women. And uh, so we're going to go and talk to our pastor about it. If he says, I'm not going to do it, then you go 
and you let your husband know that I'm going to tell him why I'm there. And that way the pastor then will have the opportunity to go to your husband and talk to him. Now, almost every time I give that counsel, Muriel, um, nobody takes it because, well, I don't want to make him mad. He'll just get embarrassed and get angry if I, if I reveal that to, to somebody at church. That's what a pastor's for. Muriel, it is impossible to surprise me anymore. And I'm not your pastor, but, but we pastors, we have heard everything. And um, so we don't blush. Uh, we're not in a position to say, oh, I can't believe you. We, nothing surprises us. And what you want to do is you want your husband to be in a right relationship with God. And that's what the church is for. So rather than trying to save face, we need to try to save a walk with Jesus. So I would simply say that's what it's going to be. We're going to go together. If you refuse, then I'm going to go. And I'm going to tell pastor this is what you're doing so he can talk to you privately. And that's just the way it needs to be. We're not doing anybody a favor by covering up their sin, even if that person is our husband. 340-9585. We're getting close to the end of our program, I think. Mark says, Pastor Ron, why is there so much online controversy over Bethel Church? Mark, the, the controversy, I think, Bethel Church is in Reading. Bill Johnson is the pastor. I get lots and lots of calls about Bethel Church and Bethel music and Jesus culture music. Um, the controversy because Bethel is a bad church. Bethel's a church that promises miracles. Bethel is a church that is completely out of control. They've pretty much thrown their Bibles in terms of how to do worship and how to, to have orderly worship in the church, both music and in teaching the Word. They've thrown those parts of the Bible out. They do what they want to do. The, the controversy is that there are people who simply won't stand for that kind of approach. And then there's others who love it. But I feel so good. I get goosebumps. And no, the Spirit was really moving. I actually watched a Bethel service online um, a year or so ago, Mark, where uh, they were promising the presence of God the whole time. And toward the end of the service, out of the rafters, um, gold dust started falling. And everybody started going crazy because there was this gold stuff floating down and on people. And they were, the presence of God is here. That's the Shekinah glory of God. And, and it's just absolute nonsense. There's always going to be controversy when it comes to churches like that. So uh, from my perspective, Mark, the controversy is just this. Why does anybody go to a church like that? Or having gone, why would anybody stay in a church like that? That's really uh, the controversy from my perspective. Got an email question here. We got four minutes. So this will be the last one for today. This is a question from uh, Ryan. And he says, Pastor Ron, what is your guidance on the Sozo ministry and Walk of Emmaus or Trace Deus ministries? They use scriptures, but I don't see this in the Bible. My spirit tells me to be cautious about them. Um, um, Ryan, thanks for asking. Um, um, the Sozo prayer ministry is a, is a Bethel Church thing. Um, the, the, the walk of Emmaus and the Deus Ministries, Deus Ministries are, are Catholic in origin. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter if people use the scriptures if they misuse the scriptures. God misuses the scriptures. But the Sozo Prayer Ministry, which uh, unfortunately Bethel has sort of franchised to other places, they send out teams to install the Sozo Prayer Ministry. It's a contemplative prayer type of thing. And there's just no value in it at all. It's ungodly, it's unbiblical. Uh, the walk of Emmaus and, and you know, the, the, all of the doctrinal problems with the Catholic Church. So listen to your spirit, Ryan. Listen to your spirit because um, your spirit is warning you that is discernment. And, and I thank you for having it. It means you're in the Bible. Um, 
constantly. Let's see if I have time for one more question from our mobile app. This is from Chip. Should we apply 2 Corinthians 6.14 when dealing with politics and dating? In other words, should I date someone who has a polar opposite view in politics, if that's the only difference in today's political climate, opposing views are so polarizing. Um, Obviously, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Chip, um, dating, I can answer unequivocally, yes, you should not date an unbeliever. You know, if you date an unbeliever, there's a lot of nice people out there. There's people that you can fall in love with. The problem is you don't want to get emotionally involved with somebody who doesn't love your Jesus. Now, this is another passage of Scripture and counsel that I give people that they just don't listen to. They just don't listen to it. And and almost, let me rephrase, the greatest degree of pain, long-lasting pain that I deal with in counseling is men and women who have married an unbeliever. So when dealing with dating, absolutely you should not ever date an unequally yoked person, somebody who doesn't love Jesus as as you love Jesus. Not just that they say they do, but uh, in the degree that you do as well. Dealing with politics. Um, I think in a, in, a, in a case when you're dating somebody, uh, politics is something you're going to have to deal with. But I think you need to open a Bible and find out what Jesus' politics are on the issue. When people argue politics, I find out generally they're not very close to Jesus. I'm going to keep this question, Chip, because there's so much more that I can do with it. Hey, thanks for the calls today. I appreciate your participation. This has been the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. See you tomorrow. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.